Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We live in a colonial fiefdom. It's fine. I know that colonialism and feudalism aren't the same thing. Don't at me. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with ProPublica's Darren Wind, Vox's Emily Stewart, and we wanted to talk about uh, Joe Biden's economic plan for America, uh, which is big. It's a uh, it's really big. One point nine trillion dollars. And it's even bigger than one point nine trillion dollars, because I I felt this got a little obscured in some of the, the coverage. But like they said very clearly, this is meant to be one bill that there will then be a sequel bill, which um their official recounting of it is that there's rescue and then there's recovery. The reality, as I understand it, is there's stuff that they feel the tires have been kicked on reasonably well in Congress, and there's stuff they're still kind of arguing about internally. But either way, this is like, it's a lot. Um, so Emily, you you were a great explainer on what's in this bill. So like, what what is in the bill? Yeah. So, I mean, it's called the American Rescue Plan. So as you said, like this feels like the first part of two parts of this. But basically, if you think about it, it's divided up into three buckets. So $400 billion for kind of dealing with coronavirus, including vaccines and testing, $1 trillion in direct relief to families. And so that includes those stimulus checks that everybody has heard about a lot. And then another $400 billion in aid to communities and businesses. So that's state and local aid, things like that. Um, you know, as you say, it is big, it has a lot of stuff in it. Um, some of the top line things, you know, that you hear about a lot are unemployment insurance. So what it would do would be to add the federal weekly benefit through September and make it $400. Right now it's $300 through about mid-March. And it would, again, have those stimulus checks making the $600 that everybody got or is getting into $2,000. It's not an extra $2,000. It is an extra $1,400, which I think there's been some confusion about, but it's an extra $1,400. So the, the, the $600, $1,400, $2,000, that attracted a lot of attention on Twitter, uh, where people like to argue about this. But it seems like the unemployment part is the most sort of significant 
element to this, right? That it's, I, I guess the K-shaped recovery lingo has has picked up, but it's it's a weird situation where most people's personal financial situation actually seems to be okay, but there's a lot of people who've lost their jobs and it's really not okay to not have a job, be in the middle of a pandemic when your prospects for getting a job are really bleak and to have no money, which is like millions of people are in that situation. And I always find it hard to message, like you don't wanna deny there's a problem, like millions and millions of people have lost their jobs, but also unlike in the Great Recession, where you like all kinds of people in 2009, like they were underwater on their home mortgage, like their whole life savings had been wiped out. Even people who were still employed had like really serious financial distress in a way that's that's different now. So aiding the jobless is like particularly crucial, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, can we actually do a little bit of back of the envelope math on this? Like. Emily, you said that the difference in ter- that they're proposing on UI is like, what, $100 extra a week and for six more months? Right. Obviously, there are fewer people, but it's like people who are unemployed are getting way more than an extra $2,000. So right. I do think that it's, I want to personally take a step back and say that it's very weird to be talking about legislation and not have the first question be, will the president sign the bill that the president's people are pushing? Like... There is a fundamental extent to which, like, it's great to leap into the typical policy political, like, world of Washington in which we can deal with material interests and, you know, like, blocks of members of Congress and that kind of thing without the entire thing being dominated by one man's ravening ego. Um, but it is, it, like, it does take a little bit of adjustment. And the other thing that's been interesting to me is that, like, the Biden, you know, they're not even the Biden administration yet um, has been kind of ramping to come into office with this very well planned out legislative agenda that appears to be coordinated ish through the back door with members of Congress. Like this isn't Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi are saying, hey, here is what we have told Joe Biden America needs. And here is the bill that we are going to put through Congress, the body that passes legislation. This is the Biden team saying, hey, we now have enough Democrats in Congress that the first plank of what we're going to do in office is tell Democrats in Congress to pass a bill, uh, which is just as somebody who is who generally thinks that the administrative side of federal policy is understated. It is interesting to me that that their first big thing is both legislative and being done as the president is proposing a bill. And I would like I'd like to hear a little bit more from you guys about what you think the politics behind that are and whether that seems like something that's likely to go as smoothly for them as they appear to think. Well, it's it's not that right. If you took the Heroes Act that House Democrats wrote and then you subtracted the December relief bill that doesn't have a name, the remainder is pretty similar to this Biden legislation. I mean, it's, it's not identical, but I mean, I, I think some of the like, here's Joe Biden's relief bill kind of vibes here reflects the fact that Democrats, um, at least like the 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 leading Democrat, like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden um, talk to the same people and have similar ideas. So it's like, what's a Pelosi bill versus what's a Schumer bill versus what's a Biden bill are just not that like 
distinct from one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and so like that's good, I guess. I mean, it's definitely the opposite of Trump, right? Where like things would come out of left field and you never really knew who was behind them, right? There's a kind of like post-Obama Democratic establishment policy blob. And what they think is that the initial stimulus request should be really, really large and that these are good things to put into the stimulus request. That's like their takeaway from their own uh, sort of shortcomings from 2009. And it's what they're trying to do. At the same time, like, it's clear that this wasn't like vetted line by line with Joe Manchin and John Tester, nor is it 100% clear what the legislative vehicle for doing any of this is. But like when Obama was president, right, uh, or, or when he was transitioning, what they thought was that a really big number would freak people out and they would say, that's crazy. We're not going to do that. Um, they also thought that once the legislative wheel started turning, that it would turn into a Christmas tree, right? Mm-hmm. That they thought Republicans would see that this was inevitably going to pass and would start saying, yeah, I'll vote for it if I can get my own, you know, $50 billion thing. And then Democrats would also want to get on that bandwagon. And so the bill would get bigger. And they worried about the bill getting too big. Right. So they wanted it to be Larry Summers's view was timely, targeted and temporary. And he was legitimately it wasn't just that, like, it's good for the money to be timely and well targeted. There was like a genuine concern that Congress was going to take this legislative framework and like put all kinds of nonsense in it. And they were upset about the nonsense. And they now feel not like that. Right. Like there's this child tax credit thing in there, which is. I don't want to say it's nonsense, like it's a good initiative, but like it has nothing to do with COVID recovery. This is literally just a thing that's been kicking around progressive think tanks for a long time that wasn't in Biden's economic agenda, but that a number of other candidates proposed and that some people on his team just like stapled on to the proposal because like they think it's a good idea. Right. And so they are they are like doing their own Christmas tree. Um, and that's because they learned from 2009 that it's hard to go back a second time if you fail. Right. I mean, last week I talked to a handful of congressional offices involved in this and was, you know, I asked them like, why this, like why this amount, what's the plan? And they were all pretty explicit. Like back in 2009, a lot of members thought they were going to get two bites at the apple and they didn't. And now you kind of see Biden saying, "Okay, like maybe we'll get a second bite. But hey, if we don't, here is bite number one. And I also think it's important to point out that this is kind of, I think, the Biden administration's opening bid here, right? Like a lot of this is going to change. You have Democrats already jockeying to get different things into the bill, right? Like if you look at the fact sheet that they put out, they mention automatic stabilizers sort of being on the table, which would mean basically like unemployment insurance is tied to certain economic conditions. So we don't constantly have this fight in Congress. But like that's not in there. Does that end up in the final proposal? We don't know yet. And so there's kind of a lot, I think, that will sort of come out in the next couple of weeks as they try and figure this out. And they also, you know, they don't know if they can get Republicans on board with this. Republicans signed on to the CARES Act, signed on to the stimulus bill. And that is like a very big question. And it seems like the idea now is to kind of give it a go, see what happens and try and fail and fail fast and then maybe pivot. Yeah, this this is the other thing that's been interesting to me 
And this is also because like the day before we're taping this episode, this you know, the story came out that Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell are working out a deal for just like how the Senate is going to work in a 50-50 split that CNN described as a power sharing agreement, which appears to be more of a characterization than a description. Um, but, the, you know, because there are some questions, particularly about like, it looks like there are going to be an equal number of Democrats and Republicans on the committees. It's raising really big questions about, okay, is the Senate in the 117th Congress going to work as a committee driven body as it historically was? Or is it going to work in the way that it's worked in the last decade where like, frankly, it doesn't particularly matter who's on the committees because the big bills aren't really coming out of the committees. The big bills are coming out in conversations between leadership of each chamber in the White House. So, you know, it, it seems to a certain extent like the conversation in D.C. before the Georgia Senate runoffs was we can't talk about the first hundred days of the Biden administration in any real concrete sense yet, because we don't know if we have the votes in the Senate and that's going to determine everything downstream, which made sense. But then the minute that that runoff happened, you know, and it, it became clear that Democrats through the tiebreak were going to have a de facto Senate majority. It went right to great. Now that Democrats have a majority in both chambers, here's our legislative agenda, which doesn't deal with the kind of mansion tester questions, you know, as Matt raised, doesn't deal with the questions of if you lose some of them, can you get other Republicans or like, generally, is this going to be like, a thing where you can do floor stuff as quickly as possible, because it's going to be very clear from the outset that you have the votes? Or are you going to have to do a slower markup process while you try to whip some votes into order? And it also doesn't take into account the whole reconciliation or like 60 vote question, which is, you know, another kind of big unanswered conversation that I gather is happening in a lot of like closed door meetings, but publicly isn't really being taken into account. So it's, it's just, it's been very interesting to see the leap from we have to know the politics before we can talk about the policy to here is the policy without the political model being publicly articulated. Yeah, although I, I think there is a part of the political model is a little bit of a, uh, I think, like, keep it simple philosophy, which I, I think we're going to talk about immigration next week when we know more details. Um, but it, but I think a, a slightly similar theme emerging across these things, which is to write down the proposal that you would like, right? Like fully aware that that's not how Congress works. And then just sort of see where it goes from there, rather than trying to sort of pre-guess what you think some people in the other party might think would be appealing. So like one thing about this, this $1.9 trillion package is it has stuff like minimum wage increase that is broadly thought to not be reconciliationable and that signifies the aspiration to pass a 60 vote bill. But there are no sweeteners. Right. So there's nothing in this that suggests a bona fide effort to secure the 60 votes, simply a need to secure them. Like Joe Biden was not born yesterday. Right. Like it's a genuine it's like 100 percent the opposite of that. To me, it makes a certain amount of sense. Right. To say that, look, like we have an aspiration to do a bipartisan bill and these are our policy aspirations mm -hmm. and it is an opportunity for either Mitch McConnell or rank and file Republican members to say, you know what, I would do half of this stuff 
if we could also do this other thing and like leave it open ended what that other thing might be or what the process might be. What I do think is odd about it, though, is that there's this rescue element, right? There's this like we need money to administer vaccines, which seems like you could get bipartisan support for. And also, like, you don't want to wait. Like, three weeks would be really fast for a legislative negotiation. But, like, we should get vaccinations going, like, sooner than that, right? And, and, so, and three weeks, while it would be really fast for, like, first hundred days style bill, isn't out of, like, both CARES and the December package were negotiated in way less time than that in terms of, like, when things actually started moving. Right. But, I mean, it's just, like, that's the sort of question, right? Like, they parceled it out into short-term versus long-term. Right. But, like, I don't know that they cleaved that distinction, like, exactly how I would have. But I think they didn't want the first package to be really measly, right? It'd just be like, well, it's just it's just testing and, and vaccine money. Um, let's take a break and, and want to talk about some more of these details. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So, Emily, you know, I think one thing in, in the background is like, what's the economic situation? Like, what are what are we rescuing here? Uh, because it's a kind of, um, I don't know, like it's both bleak and not so bleak. Well, I think it it's bleak depending on who you are. Um <laughs> which is sort of the overarching theme a lot of this. So, I mean, we are about 10 million jobs less than where we were before the pandemic. Millions of people have also just stopped looking for work. Um, 
And what we are, you hear people talk a lot about a K-shaped recovery. So what does that mean? Basically, the economy is a lot better for people who are kind of higher up on the income scale, people who can work from home, who can spend their days on Zoom, than for people who are on lower ends of the scale, people who have jobs in the service industry. A lot of that happens to be people who are lower income, people of color. So that's sort of the situation. And so when you look at you know, again, like how this package is designed, it really does look like, at least initially, they're trying to take aim at the people who really need help and people at the bottom of this scale who are kind of in that lower slope of the K. Because like, again, for me, like, whatever, my life is not as great as it was a year ago. I barely leave my house, but I still have my job. And that's not true for my neighbor who works at the bar down the street that is no longer in existence. We also, can we talk a little bit, you know, you mentioned, Emily, the kind of state and local piece of this. And that I think is something that like, you know, because there's so much heterogeneity in like the personal economic situation, we don't even necessarily talk about the state and local budget crunch, which is about to hit really, really hard as both of those entities start like their budgeting year based on the last year's you know, expected tax intake. So like, what is the kind of problem there? And what is the Biden administration proposing to do to fix it? Well, this has been a, a really big sticking point for Republicans in a way that's sort of confusing. Like everybody lives in a state and a city and not- Excuse me, excuse me. You're talking <laughs> oh, to sorry, two residents of the DC. District of Columbia. <laughs> I'm sorry, you guys live in whatever. You guys should be a state. But basically, uh, most states sort of have these balanced budget amendments, which means that unlike the federal government, they can't run a deficit. So all of their money kind of needs to add up. Their balance sheet needs to add up. And so what has happened is obviously tax revenues are down, businesses are closed. And at the same time, a lot of these states and cities sort of are experiencing more demand for services, whether health care, you know, social services, things like that. And so you sort of have this system where it's kind of out of whack and out of balance. And and what you know, a lot of people on the left and experts will tell you is that if you don't give money to cities and states, what they wind up doing is cutting services, they lay people off, and they make the recovery slower and longer. Now, is the situation the same for every city, every state? No. Um, some states are doing okay, but I think you know more broadly, the issue is like, why not give them money to have a better situation five, 10 years from now, then kind of leave this part out. And so what you see with the Biden proposal is that they're trying to get this in there. They're trying to get, I think, about $350 billion for state and local governments. And the way that they're framing it, which I found kind of interesting, at least in the fact sheet, is like not so much like just give New York like the blue state bailout or whatever. They're like, hey, this is for essential workers. This is for teachers. This is for reopening schools. Hey, don't you like public transit? That's money for that. And so it seems like they are at least trying to frame it through some of the languages like, hey, this is people and things that affect your life and not just giving money to California or Illinois or New York, not to say that they don't deserve money, but that's sort of how I'm looking at it. So it's the opposite of the kind of direct aid to individuals, like direct, clear, just name on the check money to individuals, and then the kind of complicated provision of services to states that you associate with like the safety net for individuals where it is earmarked and accessible in particular ways. Is that a fair way to describe it? Right. It's not like check to New Jersey. Right. So, you know, so one thing to note about this is that um, the, you know, so the state and local budget situation has actually, it, it looks like it's better 
than most people thought it was going to be six months ago. That like one aspect of the the K-shaped recovery is that rich people pay a disproportionate share of the taxes. So like California has a very progressive tax structure and has had a very, like most states, a very regressive like economic impact. Um, but so their state has actually turned out to be ahead of pre-pandemic budget forecasts because a number of tech companies have staged successful IPOs and generated like big, big, big tax windfalls. The flip side of that is that big cities, um, so like New York, San Francisco, Chicago, cities that expect to have white collar office workers who are generally more affluent than the city's residents, coming into town like every day, buying lunch, going to the dry cleaner, um, going out to dinner, stuff like that. Like cities have taken a, a hit um, largely because like literally there aren't as many people around. Um, and in some cases, like the, the full-time resident population has dropped. But even just beside that, like every, every major city has more commuters than residents and the commuters have really dried up. So they've got sort of a big problem there. But despite all the like blue state bailout rhetoric, on the state level, like there's absolutely no correlation here. So like Florida has no income tax, relies heavily on sales taxes for its revenue, and in particular counts on a lot of tourists coming. Um, so Florida has taken a huge hit. It's just that like their governor is right wing and doesn't care. And it's like, this is part of the like perverse politics, right? And if you remember back in 2009, Florida also had a really bad state budget situation because of housing bubble effects. And so Florida's governor at that time really embraced the Obama administration's call for fiscal stimulus. He was a Republican. He wound up being uh, run out of office and is now a House Democrat. Uh, so like Ron DeSantis is not gonna let that happen to him. And he stands four square against a blue state bailout that would help Florida and not help California at all. And I mean, that's the thing to me where like, I, I feel like the prospects, the, the congressional politics just seem hopeless to me, right? Like, like Republicans have created this narrative that isn't factual and they're like 100% dug in on it. And like, I just don't know what you could possibly do about that. And this is also a situation where time is of the essence, right? Like a, a good friend of mine works in state government and like they're gearing up for the session to start and like, you know, what they well, that'll can take extra do, money even if it comes too late. Sure. But, but, <laughs> you know, what they, like, what they can do is to a certain extent constrained by what they will need to do if the money doesn't come. Right. So they're, and, and because states have balanced budget requirements and the federal government doesn't, like, they can't exactly kick, you know, they can't exactly plan for like, okay, revenues from feds TK and then build out the rest of the budget the way that they would, you know, that, that they would like to do it. So it's definitely a situation where, you know, they can't wait several months to know whether or not there will be money. Um, and if, you know, to the extent that this does seem to be a big, you know, a, a potential political sticking point, it does raise questions about like, how long would the Biden administration and congressional Democrats be willing to stick it out and fight on this? And the sense that I have when talking to Biden people and sort of Democrats in Congress is that they are like well aware that they don't have a ton of time and that like 
at least some of them will say, listen, back in 2009, we sort of let Republicans like drag this out for a long time and kind of go back and forth with us and then eventually be like, hey, we're not going to play ball. And so it seems like now the idea is like, let's get this out there, see how it goes, try as best we can. And at least... we have, you know, a reason to say if Republicans won't go for it, hey, look, we tried and now we are going a different route. And that is because you guys would not go for it. Um, but I think like there is like a pretty good sense that they need to to not let this drag on forever and ever. And you, so one last thing on that to sort of like headline situation here, which is which is interesting, is that, you know, if you look up like the CBO's um, output gap measure, you know, they say it's about $300 billion in Q3 uh, of 2020 um, and, you know, falling. Like if there was no stimulus, right? Like you expect the economy to grow, you expect people to get vaccinated, things like that. Um, so if you look at the $1.9 trillion, it's, it's quote unquote too big relative to the output gap. Similarly, the state and local aid in Biden's proposal is bigger. There's about a $200 billion uh, tax revenue shortfall, and they're talking about about $350 billion in in total state and local aid. And they're talking about a second package of of measures. Um, So something that I like about this is that if you you see – um, the speech they gave Joe Biden to read, if you see uh, what Janet Yellen has in her prepared testimony, and if you see what Brian Deese and Barad Ramamutri have been saying in their briefings with reporters, they all say that interest rates are very low. So it is a timely opportunity to make deficit-financed investments in making things better. Um, which is a different way of looking at it from the sort of like top down, like what do we quote unquote need? They are looking at what do we have the possibility to achieve? Uh, Larry Summers, who was a, a major Democratic Party economic advisor for a long time, you know, he's been quite critical of this approach in public. He says it's going to it it does too much, that it it overstimulates the economy. I've talked to other people who were involved in the uh, Obama White House, but have not been uh, are not back for the Biden party. And, you know, they have different levels of criticalness of this, but they all agree that like mathematically it doesn't add up uh, correctly, which is I think a sign of a real break, right? Like the Biden administration has a lot of like getting the band back together vibes, but the particular subset of the band who they have gotten back together has a view of this, which is a little bit different from some of the other participants. They are not anticipating a pivot to deficit reduction coming down the road. Um, and I think that's good. I mean, if you've ever read anything I've written on Vox about this, that is 100% the perspective that I endorse. Um, and it, But it's it's refreshing and interesting to see public officials talking about borrowing costs being low and therefore the opportunity to do things rather than, oh, it's so terrible that we have all this debt, but, you know, we like, we really got to stop the economy from collapsing. Because this is not... I, I mean, I, I would say the the four hundred billion dollars, right? The the part that's about public health is like legitimately like rescuing the economy, but so much of this is just like it would be better 
for people to have more money. It would be better for state and local government to be able to do stuff instead of do budget cuts. Um, and I find that very refreshing. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a kind of shift. I don't know, like there is kind of a growing consensus among some Democrats, at least, that like, hey, maybe it's time to stop worrying so much about the deficit, especially I think after Republicans in 2017 passed their giant tax cut bill. But it's kind of refreshing to see this kind of stuff. And I think especially the more that we talk about inequality and sort of what it looks like in the economy, like understanding just because the economy top line number is good doesn't mean it's good for everyone. And this feels like a reflection of that. Like, why not make life better for everybody, like, even if they are at the lower end of the scale? Right. I mean, it does kind of feel like there are a few strands going into that kind of growing awareness. Definitely, Emily, I think that, and and I couldn't tell you why this is the case, but it does appear to me that after a long time of Democrats being more worried about Republicans criticizing them for deficit spending than Republicans being worried about deficit spending, you know, when, when Republicans were in power that like, it seems like a critical mass of Democrats kind of hit the point of like hit a point of no tolerance. And we're like, okay, this is no longer something that we can take seriously in our own political considerations. I think another thread of this though, is that there's a certain kind of capturable surplus in the fact that the economy is a little bit better in some respects than conventional wisdom suggests the economy to be like Mm -hmm. generally, you know, and, and Matt, this is, you know, this is something that like all of us have talked about separately all the time. Like people who are under the Trump administration, people who weren't like diehard Trump critics generally tended to kind of understand intuitively that, that things were going okay. And now it seems to everybody that things are going not okay. So to the extent that some of it actually is kind of okay, you can capture that and use it by telling people, yes, we know everyone is hurting right now and we are going to help you hurt less and kind of quietly make sure that 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 money is being used to help the people who are hurting more without it seeming like an obvious transfer, because the top line read on the economy is that everything is a disaster right now. Well, and it's because like American society is a disaster right now. Right, right. Normally, like things are going badly is a kind of like economy first assessment. Um, But it's like, I feel like my life is going really badly. And it's not that's not like a dollars and cents calculus. It's a like, my five-year-old hasn't been able to see his grandparents. We're getting ready for his second pandemic, socially distanced birthday party. Like it's, you know, everybody feels like life's a bummer, right? right? And that's an opportunity to generate a sense of like psychic solidarity. That like yes, we're all exactly. dealing with big problems that are not any individual person's fault. And so let's go help out. It seems like the minimum wage is kind of the exception to this, right? Because minimum wage is something where it's very clear who it is going to help. And for, you know, many people who are politically overrepresented, that person is not you. And so I'm wondering what people think about trying to turn a minimum wage hike into an economic recovery measure in this sense and whether it makes sense from a policy as well as a political perspective. I mean, people like more money. Like, it's kind of like just from a political perspective. So, like, you think about Florida back in November had a ballot measure to approve a $15 minimum wage. And Florida said yes. Like, Florida also voted for Donald Trump and for Republicans. So, I think, like, beyond the policy perspective of it, which you can debate about, like, we also just don't 
always have a ton of evidence about the $15 minimum wage and what it really means is like, by and large, a lot of people want to make more money. A lot of people work in minimum wage jobs or have had minimum wage jobs and it sucks to make $7.25 an hour. Like it sucks that if you want to take an Uber to work or whatever, that's two hours of your day. And I think that it's really intuitive for people to think like, I want this, whether or not this ends up in the final bill or whatever ends up going on the floor is hard to say. But I think politically, it's like a lot of people think this is a good idea. And kind of if you think that it's not a good idea, you kind of look like a jerk, at least with some of the tweets that went viral over the weekend, people being like, oh, Taco Bell's going to be so expensive now. Like, okay. (laughs) Well, and so, you know, I do think in, in policy terms, right? I mean, I think a sort of standard approach would suggest that a pandemic uh, well, which suggests that a recession is a bad time to increase uh, a minimum wage uh, because, you know, you have sort of surplus workers, essentially, right? And you want to reemploy them as rapidly as possible. Now, you might say a pandemic is different from that because even though you have a lot of unemployed people, they're not exactly surplus. They're just sort of, um, they're like on hold, right? I mean, just like the bars that are closed are still there. Or even if they've gone out of business, the physical capital is still there, right? To take a closed bar and turn it into an open bar is actually not that challenging. And, and you know, the bartenders still exist. And, and so they'll all just return, right? It could be one way of looking at it. Um, and then you have sort of super normal returns at certain places, right? So like I keep driving past fast food restaurants that have help wanted up in their windows because they are experiencing unusual high levels of demand, people who have drive-throughs in particular, Uh, but they don't want to build a permanent wage increase into their cost structure. So they are trying to get people to go work there, but they're like sort of not. Right. And if you force them all to raise pay, that might be actually helpful in in some ways. All that being said, right, whatever Congress does with the minimum wage, they will do some point in the future from now with some kind of a phase in. And like, God willing, it's like the pandemic will be over even before a like very aggressive phase in is completed. So I think in some ways, like, you know, you can put it in the pandemic relief bill or not, depending on what you think. But like, it's just not a pandemic measure. It's too it's too late for that and is going to be part of our our like our new reality um, or maybe just won't happen at all. Uh, Bernie Sanders believes that he can put this into a reconciliation bill. He talked me into that briefly, but I have now once again been talked out of it. The parliamentarian ruled that they couldn't repeal the Affordable Care Act mandate in a reconciliation bill. And that's why it has the weird structure where the penalty was reduced to zero, but the mandate still exists. Can we actually just walk through briefly, because I suspect that this is going to come up a lot over the next couple of years, what you can and can't reconcile? Oh my God. Uh, it's it's hard to say what you can and can't reconcile. Um, so, okay, so a bill that passes as part of a budget reconciliation measure goes through what they call the birdbath 
uh, named after former Senator Robert Byrd, who wrote the rule. And people can object to various things by saying that they don't meet the test. So if it changes Social Security, it doesn't meet the test. If it raises the budget deficit over the long term, defined as outside the 10-year CBO scoring window, it doesn't meet the test. And then if it's superfluous to budgetary questions, it doesn't meet the test. This is where a lot of things get um, uh, weird because minimum wage increase has large budgetary effects, right? Uh, but by the same token, repealing the individual mandate had budgetary effects. But the parliamentarians' ruling was that the budgetary effects there were incidental to what was being described, whereas lowering the penalty they felt would be okay. Um, so you could put it down, right? And I mean, who cares, right? This wound up being a point of contention later in constitutional litigation. But so it could be that you cannot raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, but you can impose a 100% employer-side payroll tax on wages that are below $15 an hour, in which case everybody would raise their pay to $15 an hour. But I don't know if Democrats are interested in getting cute uh, or, or what it is they're saying exactly, but potentially they would, right? I mean, certainly if it were up to Bernie Sanders, who chairs or will chair the relevant committee, he would put things through, you know, by hook or by crook. Um, I just don't know if the other members will actually embrace that kind of idea. Uh, how senators think about the sanctity of Senate procedure is a little bit of a black box as far as I'm concerned. Um, they say things that don't necessarily make sense. And sometimes they're engaged in very strategic calculations about what they want to do. But other times it's just like, um, you know, Tom Carper feeling nostalgic and Anyway, that's a, the long way to saying it's hard to say what you can right. and can't do in reconciliation. It's it's always a little bit of a moving target. Right. We can finagle things. And isn't it that like the parliamentarian can say no, but then like the like Kamala Harris could conceivably say yes, right? Well, and in 2001, Trent Lott fired the parliamentarian <laughs> and got a different parliamentarian. Senate process does not bind the Senate. Right. It is part of why it's always hard to say what exactly it is the members are saying, uh, because the Senate makes its own rules, as you saw with um, the, the nuclear option debates on filibustering. It requires a two thirds vote to change the rules of the Senate unless the majority decides not to do it that way. <laughs> it right. It's a it's a. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's a it's a little hard to say, but it's like the houses of Congress are fully sovereign bodies and a majority of them can make the rules say whatever it is they want the rules to say. But they don't operate on that Calvin Ball basis, like right up until the moment when they decide they want to. So, you know, we're, we're going to have to see. Um, we're going we're to have to see. I that. do think it's, it's worth kind of underlining uh just kind of to make explicit the comparison between what you're saying now and what you were saying like 10, 15 minutes ago, Matt, that like there are things in which it is very clear that the consensus among like Democrats in positions of power has shifted from the Obama years. And there are other questions like how aggressive tactically do you want to be in reconciliation? You know, what like how much are they willing to blow up the rules of the Senate that it's not that it doesn't seem like there's been a shift, but 
that conversation either isn't as much of a consensus or hasn't been taking place in public. And so that really is going to become like an open question on the how aggressive is the Biden administration going to be? How aggressive are congressional Democrats going to be? Like this, I think, is something where there's probably going to be some fights down the road because we're not getting the clear signals that we're getting from them on like deficit spending. Okay, now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and let's let's take a break. Let's let's talk about a white paper. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard, but with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. All right, I uh, got a fun one here. It is called Trauma at School, the Impacts of Shootings on Students' Human Capital and Economic Outcomes. Uh, Marika Cabral, Buck Young King, Maya Rossenslater, Molly Schnell, and Hannah Schwant uh, were able to take advantage of the uh, large volume of school shootings in the state of Texas between the years of 1995 and 2016 to create a um, difference within differences model uh, that looks at a lot of um, administrative data on particular student outcomes. This is all the good weed stuff. I mean, it's a it's a little bit horrifying. Yeah. Shout out to the state of Texas, by the way. This is like the second time in the last several months that we've been able to use a paper coming out of Texas because Texas does a particularly good job of linking it's high school and college administrative data. Yes, exactly. Texas is a is a is a data rich. They are the Sweden of state data, um, although also have a lot of school shootings. Um, so, I mean, I guess this is not shocking, but it is traumatic to survive a shooting at your school. And shooting exposed students are uh, more likely to miss school. They're more likely to be chronically absent. They're more likely to end up repeating a grade. They become less likely to graduate high school, lower levels of college enrollment, lower levels of college graduation, uh, lower levels of employment, and lower levels of earnings. Um, so which is to say it does not fade out. I think it's not obvious if you want to say the trauma itself doesn't fade out or if it's just that missing a bunch of school like at one point in your life has bad kind of long term impacts. I guess my intuition is that it's it's the latter, that it's just that like it's, it's not that like you can't get over the experience, but that. I don't know. It's like if you're chronically absent in seventh grade, like that can be a huge problem for you in life, especially if you don't have a kind of like robust parental safety net to like bounce you back onto the right track. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's also possible that there's a middle route that like there is a period in which what is, ha you know, your academic performance is being hampered by trauma. And then there is a period in which your academic performance is hampered by your academic performance having been hampered in the past by trauma. <laughs> um, 
here's what is interesting to me about this paper. This paper takes for, you know, methodological reasons, but also kind of common sense reasons, the assumption that the people who are most affected by school shootings are the students that go to that school. That like, it's not, you know, even though many of the school shootings in this paper are not the kind of national story school shooting, like mass shootings, um, which are more disproportionately white victims in white districts than the broader body of school shootings. They're taking a lot of school shootings that are in communities that are already disproportionately harmed by gun violence. And when we talk about that kind of gun violence, we tend to talk about these like, you know, we tend to talk about networks at the very individual level, right? There are a limited number of people who are extremely high risk of being perpetrators of violence, victims of violence, knowing victims of violence. What we're looking at here is the unit of analysis of if you were at a school that had a shooting on campus during school hours, that is, you know, like that is what we're assuming is going to affect you. And that that is both like on the one hand, broader than when we talk about youth gun violence generally, but also narrower than the way we've started to talk about school shootings. Because in, in the post Newtown, post Parkland environment, a lot of the rhetoric around school shootings is about the effect on every kid of the possibility that there might be a shooting at your school and, you know, kind of downstream the effects of having lockdown drills, that kind of thing. But it's seen as a, it's seen, it, there's a, a conversation around a broader trauma or broader chilling effect associated with the possibility of a school shooting rather than the specific harms borne by students who actually went to those schools. And so I think that this is, you know, on the one hand, yeah, like it's not surprising that you can see this difference in students who were who went to one of those schools versus students who didn't. But on the other hand, it's a little bit hard to assimilate into the way we talk about youth violence or the way we talk about school shootings, both of which don't assume that there's going to be a big difference between somebody who goes to a school where a shooting happened but didn't know any of the people involved and somebody who, you know, goes to the school next door. Yeah. I mean, one thing I kind of thought was interesting in this is, like, they looked at what did and didn't make a difference. And one of the conclusions they had was that, like, mental health and support after the shooting didn't really make a big difference in terms of educational outcomes or income outcomes. And that kind of, I think, emphasizes a little bit here, I mean, which is not a unique point, but, like, kind of what do you do after a shooting to help these people if we know that these kids are kids that are going to struggle throughout the rest of their lives. Like, I think that the estimate is that they lose $100,000 in income over their lives, which is a lot of money over time. And so, like, it's like, well, there's a shooting at your school and, like, this is going to have effects. And, like, it seems like at least, like, counseling at school, maybe you go to a school with more resources or less, doesn't make as much of a difference as as maybe one would hope it would. Yeah, you know, I mean... Another thing that I thought about reading this is that there was a a paper that I'd read that got fairly widely discussed, I think may have been a a Weeds White paper a, a few months ago, and it was looking at police shootings in school communities and its impact. And it's, you know, it's like, broadly similar to this, uh, which raised the question of, like, was that something particular about police officers? Or are we just learning a sort of general lesson about like violence and trauma in people's lives. Um, I think qualitative reporting that I read from Perry Stein in the Washington Post about um, sort of like neighborhood crime and school. She, she's a schools reporter for um, here, here in DC. 
you know, was suggesting a similar thing, right? That it's like if people are being murdered on your block, that makes it hard to focus in school later. People being murdered in your school, that makes it hard to focus on school later. If police officers are killing people in a way that um, dominates media attention because it's more noteworthy than quote unquote regular crime, like that also has the same kind of impact, particularly on people who see themselves as similar to the victims, right? Um, which is all very understandable. I mean, I think if you just think about human beings, that's kind of what you would anticipate. But the persistence of the problems, I do think is noteworthy. I mean, that's where like rigorous statistical evidence is really helpful that we can all intuit that like it's better to not have gunmen open fire on your school. Uh, but it's actually, you know, the, the, the costs persist. And as Emily was saying, there's not an obvious like remedy, at least that we know of, right, other than to not do it. We don't have really effective like post hoc means to make this all be okay. But it's also the case that because, as you know, generally when we talk about gun violence, we're talking about like a few different phenomena that it's it's not like we have an easy answer to how do we stop there from being shootings on the campus of school grounds during school hours anyway, right? Like the, the conversation about mass school shootings tends to be similar to the conversation on mass shootings in terms of policy remedies, which may not be relevant at all to the phenomenon of, well you know, you're getting shot on campus during school hours for reasons that are identical to the reasons where you would be shot on the street on a Saturday. We we neither have a good answer that isn't prevention, nor do we have a good answer on prevention. But it is kind of interesting to frame it as an economic problem. Like, I think sometimes yeah. it's like, I mean, not that people don't care about shootings, but it's like different ways to be like, hey, like, this is important, not just because, like, some kids at a school were scared, but also, like, this is going to right. affect, like, broader. Yeah, it, it's right. It's, it's also not for nothing, not terrible to, to like, like, not that probably useful to think about it. This is a survivor issue because there's so much emphasis on what is lost when people are killed mm -hmm. that to remember that, like, even though it can be very difficult to talk about this in a way that, like, doesn't seem disrespectful to those who are mourning loved ones. Like, yes, there is trauma associated with having to go into a building where you know that someone was shot. And like, that is something that is going to affect you in later life. I also think, you know, beyond the sort of specific four corners of this, you know, when we were talking about COVID relief, right? And it's the recognition that like something really bad has happened to everybody through no particular fault of their own appears to have inspired a more generous um, way of thinking about public policy, right? And while obviously like we hope that there will never be a pandemic, we hope that there will never be a school shooting, we hope that we can remediate this. The fact is that like happenstance has a lot of impact on people's lives, sometimes in hard to ascertain ways, right? It's like, if you were shot in a school shooting, and it left you disabled, like everybody could see that and would know that about you. But if you were a survivor of a shooting years and years ago, and it caused you to miss a lot of school, and then it was hard to get back on track, and so you wound up not going to college, you know, people would look at you and they'd be like, well, like it goes to show, like you gotta work hard and stay in school, right? And just to understand that like life is complicated and people are impacted by a wide range of things that are not in their 
control, you know, I think it's just an important step to having a more humane view of the world because like it's true, right? I'm sure you could trace any of the individuals in this administrative data set and been like, well, if he just hadn't gone out partying that one time, but you know, but like who is like that, right? Like it's nobody who got someplace good lived like a life free of errors. So just looking at the fact that people who end up in, in bad situations have made mistakes, I think just underplays the extent to which um, there's like always a chain of, of like badness in the world. <laughs> there we go. Lessons about empathy from school shootings. <laughs> a chain of badness. It's delightful. Um, <laughs> a chain of badness. Our podcast, of course, is always a chain of goodness. Um, thank you, Emily, uh, for coming on. Thanks to our producer, Eric Giannakis. Uh, thanks to our sponsors. Uh, and the Weeds will be back on Friday.